for your idolatrous sins, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. Uh, though these words are heavy, uh, they're in our Bibles because you want us to read them, and you want us to understand them, and you want us to take heed from them. Uh, as our brother Sam mentioned on Sunday, warning is love. And not only is this history that took place, it's a warning to us uh, not to follow in these footsteps. And so, Lord, we just uh, ask that you would speak now by your Spirit uh, to each and every heart that is here. In your name we pray. Amen. In, uh, it was May 31st, 1889. Uh, it ended up being the biggest story and uh, one of the biggest disasters in the United States, and certainly it was the, the biggest story uh, in the United States at that time since the Civil War had ended in the 1860s. Uh, what would take place that day uh, would stun and shock America. It was a town in Pennsylvania called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. I've been there myself, and I uh, remember seeing the plaque uh, there. Johnstown was a steel town. This is in the 18, late 1880s. Uh, this is when the steel magnets, guys like um, uh, you had the, uh, the, the, the magnets there that lived in Pittsburgh, and you had uh, all of the uh, industrial revolution that was taking place and the railroad tracks that were being built uh, across the country. And uh, Johnstown was a prominent steel town, situated at the junction of two uh, small rivers, the Little uh, Connemaw and the Stony Creek River. And at the western end of the city, they joined uh, to form the larger Connemaw River. And it was on this uh, May 31st that it began to rain. A storm had moved from the Midwest over and settled uh, there over Pennsylvania, not just Pennsylvania, but the Ohio Valley and all that. It rained and rained, and rained. It rained relentlessly. Uh, now, 14 miles upriver, Johnstown sits in a, it sits in a valley with high, high ravines uh, that run these two rivers down into where uh, the valley is where Johnstown was built. Uh, but 14 miles upriver, uh, you had guys like uh, Dale, you had Carnegie, uh, and uh, the, the banker there in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Mellon, uh, which you, today you have Mellon Bank, and, and you had these uh, wealthy magnets uh, that had built uh, a man-made lake 14 miles up the river, uh, but the dam was really poorly constructed. And they had built the lake, and they had built a private club there, and it was um, 70 feet deep, it was two miles in length, and it was their own private fishing club, so everyone there was really rich dudes. With they had built houses all around it, but the but the uh, the dam was poorly constructed of dirt and earthen, and they had even put a screen, uh, which ended up being a, a bad idea because the screen would actually keep the fish in, but it also ended up over time backing up, so no water was passing through at a regular rate, which would actually relieve uh, when you would have storm. You would want that water flowing through, but they had done that, and so you got these really smart brilliant, magnet, multi-millionaire men that had built the private lake, built the club, had the houses around it, and yet they had this really poorly constructed dam. Well, when it, when it rained, now, people had thought for years prior, it, people had mentioned from time to time, what, you know, is this dam all that safe? Is it going to hold? And then it, after a while, people kind of got used to and made fun of it, just kind of you know, it's almost a running joke that, yeah, one year, one year the dam's going to break. Now, May 31st, 1889, that dam did break at 310 in the afternoon. And what came out of it was the flow equivalent to the Mississippi River. And it was such a wall of water, it was 40 to 60 feet high. Wall of water and debris and trees, and mud, and anything in its path. The first couple of towns, the South Fork, the only thing left was the ground. It just took everything. And as it got all the way down to where the steel mills were on the outside, it got all the way down to Johnstown. It took, took about 40-some minutes to travel 14 miles all the way down, picking up mud, debris as it went. Remember, it had been raining. 
Johnstown was already 10 feet of water, so people couldn't flee like they normally would be able to because they were stuck in high water. And already it was coming in their houses, but they, they had dealt with floods before. They were used to floods. But this flood wasn't like any other flood. And it was coming down, um, well over 2,000 people would lose their lives. And it even took the boilers from the steel mill. And because it would take things, and the heaviest things, it would like, because the wall, it would just push them right to the top. There was a raging inferno of fire on top of it all with the boilers, the very things that had made the town and the very rich magnets that had built the town. They ended up causing an uproar in America because people couldn't believe that all these people died because a poorly constructed dam for a bunch of wealthy men uh, with a club on a private fishing lake. But the reality was this, that, that impending doom was always there and it was getting closer and closer and closer and closer, and people kind of kind of sloughed it off like it probably won't happen, and yet it did. You can't build um, you can't build something unless God builds it and expect it to really work. You can't build a nation on idolatry, immorality, greed, and rebellion, uh, especially when this uh, nation in the case of Israel, is called to represent the true and living God. See, if you build on faulty principles, if you build on things that are never endorsed by God in the first place, just like engineers didn't really endorse the structural integrity of the dam, God never endorsed what Israel, the path they were taking. And eventually destruction will come. Eventually the dam will break. Eventually, God himself will break the dam, and he'll send the judgment that we're seeing here in this 23rd chapter. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in the 23rd chapter tonight, A Price Too High. A Price Too High. We'll look at three things, the past, the patterns, and the price. The past, the patterns, and the price. He starts off, the, Lord, the word Lord comes to me saying, Son of man, there were two women. One of the women, Ahola. Uh, referred to as the elder of the two, and the other one named Aholabah. God says these two sisters belonged to him. Now, why would that be? Well, they were the offspring. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, by whom the Lord had given birth to this nation. So God had chosen Abraham through the patriarchs. So these, uh, these two sisters were the offshoot of the patriarchs that God himself had chosen. Back in Ezekiel chapter 20, you may remember if you were with us uh, for the 20th chapter, chapter 20, verse 7, it says this, Then I said to each of them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Ezekiel, recording what the Lord uh, said to him back in chapter 20 and here again, uh, a number of times here in the 23rd chapter, he makes it clear that God came to the descendants of Abraham while they were in bondage. Remember, when God sends Moses to Egypt, remember, Moses didn't want to go. But when God's, and then God convinced him, no, you're, you're going. When God sends Abraham, I mean, God sends Moses to the children of Israel while they're in bondage, when he gets there, it's apparent that they were not actually, I mean, some there, there was probably a remnant, but the majority were not living for the Lord. They're in Egypt. In fact, collectively, they were worshiping the same gods of Egypt even while they were slaves in Egypt. You would think that that would uh, cause everyone to worship God, the God of their fathers, but in fact, they were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. Remember that Abraham was promised by God in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 14. Uh, we're not going to turn there, but if you uh, write that down, his descendants, they would be strangers and they would be afflicted in a foreign land for 400 years. And before, and before that they, uh, that 400 years, at the end of that 400 years, they would be delivered by God and they would actually come out 
he told Abraham they'd come out with great possessions. Abraham was not told there, in the 15th chapter, he was not told there that his offspring would adopt the gods of the nation that they would be in bondage to during that time. Abraham was only told that someday they would be as the stars of the heavens. That's, that's what he was told. And that they'd be delivered. From God's own testimony to Ezekiel, uh, we know from verse 4, we know that Samaria is Ahola, and Aholabah is Jerusalem. Now, Ahola, which is the one for Samaria, it means her own tabernacle. Her own tabernacle. Aholabah means my tabernacle is in her. Guess which one you really want. You don't want your own tabernacle. You want God's tabernacle dwelling with us. We want the Lord to tabernacle with us. And that was the name of Aholabah or Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of the ten-tribe northern kingdom, and Jerusalem was the capital of what was originally the combined kingdom prior to the division and continued as the capital when it was the southern kingdom, or Judah. So Samaria and Ahola, as one of the sisters, they represent the northern kingdom. That's the northern kingdom. And Jerusalem and Aholabah, as the other sister, they represent Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. Samaria is referred to as the elder sister because the northern kingdom was the first to separate uh, from the combined kingdom of David and Solomon. And they had ten tribes. The northern kingdom had ten tribes and the southern kingdom had two, albeit Judah was the, was the largest, strongest of all the tribes. Uh, the ten uh, and the fact that it left first appears to be why it's referred to as the elder sister. When, um, when Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom, uh, what he did to keep the people, he was worried. You know, imagine if America, uh, let's say the Civil War, had not been won by the north, and we had two separate countries. Um, and if there was a place that everyone in America always ventured to, and it was in the north, um, it, would be, it might be considered a risk factor to the south that if they keep going there, they might actually like it better there, and we could lose allegiance of the people, and we could actually get back into another war or something like that. Well, in the case of, uh, of Israel, everyone was supposed to go to the temple for Passover, and for various feasts. And so everyone was supposed to go to the temple, but Jeroboam had a brilliant, wicked idea that he would build a place, a temple that they could come, and he built, uh, he built these golden calves uh, that the people could worship there instead of... He said, it's going to be too far for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem. So we've built an alternative for you. And, and he incorporated some of the same feast seasons, but he changed them all. So it looked kind of like what they were used to, and he had just turned it into an idolatrous place. But again, he even came up with a priesthood. They weren't Levites. They were just a mix of all kinds of uh, different backgrounds, and so he did that as well and gave them an alternative. So that's what, that's what ends up in Samaria is a counterfeit of Jerusalem. That would be in the northern kingdom. That was the place that many would worship. Now, certainly there would have been some faithful in the northern kingdom that still would have gone in Jerusalem, but the vast majority said, hey, if that's our new, if that's our new temple, we're down with it. And they adopted that. Let's look at the patterns if you're taking notes. Uh, this gives you a little b- a background on the past here. Uh, the patterns... Uh, we see in verses 5 uh, through 21, the Lord lays out uh, exactly how Samaria goes down their path and how uh, Jerusalem goes down its path, again, representing uh, the northern kingdom and Judah. History, the Lord talks about 
that they committed harlotry in Egypt all the way at their beginning. They were born in harlotry. Now, when you think about you and me, we were born again in sin, right? It's not like we were looking for God. He came looking for us. And as he was looking for us, then we heard his voice and we started looking, where am I, where am I, like Samuel, 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 where am I hearing that voice? And then we did start looking for God, but Jesus said, you did not seek me, I sought you. So the children of Israel, the same thing, they're in Egypt, they were, you know, worshiping false gods, they uh, committing the same harlotry or idolatry. Remember, harlotry and idolatry are synonymous in the Bible. Although you might have noticed as many times we read the word lewdness uh, because there was a lot of sexual immorality. But in the ancient times, idolatry and sexual practices around idolatry went hand in hand. So they were, they were uh, pretty much joined at the hip. So there were interchangeable terms, harlotry, idolatry. When, it t- when it's speaking of the national sin of idolatry, uh, anything that takes the place of God, but Israel, uh, when they, before they became a nation and they were there in Egypt, they were already in idolatry, and they're born out of it. Now, history doesn't have to repeat. I mean, just because we were once in idolatry doesn't mean we ever have to go back there. It doesn't have to repeat. Past mistakes and choices can be avoided. Those of you that are parents... You don't want your kids to say, well, you should probably wait and get saved when you're 40 like I did and make all the same mistakes so you really understand how it all works, right? Or is that if I didn't get saved at 40, I got saved at 20, I got saved at 25. I don't want my daughters waiting until 25 to repeat all the history, to understand just exactly how much sin you can get yourself into. History doesn't have to repeat past mistakes Bad choices, they can be avoided if, they can be avoided if there's a turning to God with obedience. It's a big if. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. Remember, we were back in the 18th chapter. Um, It says this, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. You can be in idolatry, you can be in immorality, but you can turn from it. And Israel had turned from it. Moses turned them away from sin and to what? Mount Sinai, the law, the commandments were given. They turned away. They actually did forsake their... It it wasn't without a bit of a fight. Remember the golden calf? It was hard hard to get rid of the golden calves in our lives, isn't it? Even as a Christian, it's still hard. You say, say, well, I've gotten rid of all of them. Well, God will probably show you one now. Hard getting rid of the golden calves. uh, But they had turned away for a time. But just like the Lord will forgive an individual who turns from sin, as Ezekiel 18.21 tells us, this is all true of nations. We quote this verse from time to time. We pray for our own revival here in America. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a collective, the land. See the shining sea. The whole land can be healed if they turn. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seems like a good idea. That seems pragmatic. You ever heard someone giving a, a really good case for something you know is biblically wrong? But they're giving a really good case for it. They're doing their best. And if you didn't know anything, you might say, that sounds reasonable. That sounds loving. That sounds extra kind. That sounds really, really sweet on my tongue. But this is why it's so important that we have to know what the Word of God says. We have to know what it says. In ancient times and in today, you can't follow the cultural norms. The preferences 
of our leaders. They all have preferences. They all have their own opinions. They all have their own bias. None of that's the Word of God. You can't follow the religious, religious establishment if their dictates aren't in harmony with God's words and God's commands. Now, down through the centuries, even the, uh, the Catholic Church, the Church of England, their, even the religious, religious establishment, it was not based on the Word of God. What you don't know really can kill you. True? A lot of people that moved to Johnstown had no clue. They didn't even know there was a lake 14 miles upstream. The more you know, the more you might say, it's probably not a great town to live in. Because it's really just a ticking time bomb. So many today are misled by popular thinking. Espoused in education, in the education system, espoused by political leaders, uh, even sports entertainment's getting into the act. I mean, instead of just being sports entertainment, now they want to dictate an agenda. News and media, and if certainly those that we kind of uh, bump into in the community, just the opinions of man builds over time. Just like uh, uh, the, the build up there in that lake before the dam broke, opinions build up over time. They wash over the whole country, and everyone, all of a sudden you wake up, and when, when did everybody start believing this? But Israel was supposed to cling to the truth. It didn't matter if every other pagan nation thought it was okay to have idolatry, thought it was okay to have multiple gods, thought it was okay to worship Molech, thought it was okay. They were to cling to the truth. But popular thinking, rather than scriptural thinking, can sweep an entire culture, can it? It can sweep the whole nation away. It's been well said that... uh, if you can have the, the arts and the poets, you'll be better off than having the armies because you'll sway what people really think. You'll sway their interpretation of things, the way they view the world. And this is what continually happened with the ancient Israel, northern kingdom, and the ancient kingdom of Judah. These two nations which originally were just the one nation. God didn't intend them to be two nations. They were originally just one nation. They had a familiar pattern. Their pattern would go something like this. They'd be mired in sin and rebellion and idolatry. They'd, be, they'd fall in love with anything but God, especially with false religion. Living lives of comfort, that was a big thing, to rise and play. Sound familiar, doesn't it? And immorality, that was, that was what they would slide down the hill into regularly. And then God would send some form of judgment, wouldn't he? It could be a famine, it could be disease, it could be wars, it could be economic woes and so forth. All of them painful. I mean, have you ever had, well, how many, used to, you don't like splitting headaches, but you're fine with just any other headache. No. There's no headache I've ever wanted to have. Not the worst ones, not the small ones. They're all painful to some degree. You don't really like getting a splinter. It's small, but man, you can't find that thing. It's on your mind until you find a way to get it out of there. So even small judgments aren't fun. They were painful, but the nation... The nations of northern kingdom or Israel, they wouldn't be completely destroyed with most of these as they came. They wouldn't be completely destroyed. They wouldn't be carried away as captives, as a, as a nation, that is. And they wouldn't cease to exist as a nation. It's kind of like, um, like if there was a fire in a house. Uh, maybe the fire consumed one room. Maybe it consumed uh, a few rooms, maybe several rooms. And in the process, if, if a fire destroyed two, three rooms in your house or maybe your garage, it would destroy several irreplaceable things. I mean, you'd never get them back. Even if insurance could, could give you the money for the rooms, the picture album's gone. The two cars, if they're in the garage, burned, gone. You can get a replacement, but it may be of one that was a collector item or something. Then... 
if it wasn't a complete uh, loss, you could restore the house. While you do that, you get the fun of living in temporary housing somewhere, right? You get to go live in an apartment, you know, all that stuff you get to go through. Uh, but rather than seeing the whole house, see, that, that's a partial, it's a partial fire. It's not complete judgment, it's not complete fire, but that would be quite a bit different than the house burning to the ground. And then after it burned to the ground, a sinkhole opens, and the whole property is condemned. That's the level of difference. What they had experienced, oh, yeah, we lost a room, and it was not fun. But guess what? We rebuilt it, and now everything's back to normal. And then we lost another couple of rooms, but we rebuilt those too, and everything's back to normal. But the patterns, they can be taken for granted, can't they? In Johnstown, Pennsylvania, they were used to a measure of flooding, as I mentioned. And it wasn't fun when they would have other floods prior to that one that came in May 31st, 1889. The other floods weren't fun either. But people would get used to it. They would lose some things. They'd have to toss some things out that got waterlogged and they were no good anymore. They'd have to replace some boards. They'd have muddy cleanups that they'd have to get all the mud out and get everything out of there. But then things would return to normal. And it would seem as if that would always be the pattern. We can get lulled to sleep by patterns, can't we? Uh, it's actually called, there's a name for it. It's called the normalcy bias. I've mentioned it before. The normalcy bias is something like this. Yes, we've had droughts here and here, but there could never possibly be a nationwide famine. Why? Because it's never happened. And if it's never happened, that means it can't happen. That's the normalcy bias. Things that have never happened, people don't think happen. It's like saying, well, I've never died, so therefore I won't die. Just because we haven't died doesn't mean we won't die. We have our own normal. We're used to waking up every day. But these things can come, and the Lord brings them when people have settled into these patterns or nation. People say, well, it's never happened. At least in my lifetime, it's never happened. If it hasn't happened in my lifetime, we don't think it'll happen in our lifetime. It might happen to somebody else, but just not us. And that's the way they might think. As you study Israel, you'll note that the children of Israel repeatedly took for granted the grace and mercy that God uh, had sent in, I would call, God-sent revivals. Why? Because revivals always come from God. We pray for revival. You ever, you know, you ride by a church, and I, and I appreciate the mindset when it says revival Tuesday through Thursday this week. You ever seen that? Now, they do want revival, but you can't say, in biblical terms, revival will be taking place. The kind of revival that we need has to be poured out by God. There, by the way, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I know that the desire is people... And churches that you know, have a revival meeting, good stuff. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I'm just saying that uh, revival, the kind of revival that transforms, has to be poured out by God. We can pray for it. We can hope for it. And I've, I've mentioned before, um, you know, Andrew Murray in uh, South Africa, one of the revivals, I'll actually mention it in just a few minutes, one of the revivals that took place um, that swept and all the way went down to where he was at in South Africa. He had prayed for years to just have one man that would go into the ministry. And for years, he couldn't get a single man in his parish and the, and the, and the uh, people that he served. He couldn't get a single man to go into the ministry. And then revival came and 25 men in one month. It's the kind of stuff you saw with Pastor Chuck witnessed in Southern California when God pours out revival you know that it's different than anything you've ever seen before. Just like judgment looks different than anything you've ever seen, revival looks like different than anything you've ever seen. We kind of end up somewhere in the middle, but judgment looks a whole lot different, and revival looks a whole lot different. And they're usually on the they're two bookends there. Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses said, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes, or, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, Till this very day. So Moses said, you couldn't see until God all of a sudden opened your eyes and opened your ears. 
Remember at Pentecost, it was a rushing wind that came down from heaven, the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 souls given by the Lord to the church that very day. That doesn't happen all the time, does it? It's a a work of the Lord. Israel had many revivals in history. Several would be considered great revivals. Why would I say great? Well, they were the ones that had that nationwide impact. Great revivals. And somewhat lasting in impact. Uh, Each of them would have a lasting impact for a while, and then eventually the nation would go back into sin again. Some of the major revivals would include when Moses, at the beginning, Moses pulling them out of Egypt. Obviously, it was the Lord, but Moses preaching to them, bringing them out, and we saw that was a revival. Not just a revival spiritually, but actually God reviving the very nation out of bondage. And then there was the revival under King Asa. There's a revival under Jehoshaphat. Then Hezekiah's revival. Then under Josiah. And finally, under Ezra and Nehemiah, and that would be in Ezekiel's time, that would have been the future because that revival would take place after they had been in captivity to Babylon and to Persia. And when they got to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, there was a revival there as well. Another great revival still awaits Israel in the tribulation period. It'll be a, it'll be a revival, but it'll be under intense persecution and incredible difficulty. Uh, I think we have the forerunner of that revival perhaps in our lifetime. If you heard Sam uh, mention, it's hard for us to ignore that more Jewish people have come to Christ in the last 19 years than the previous 19 centuries. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 19 years than the previous 19 centuries. There is a forerunner revival taking place. You know, there are forerunners in the Bible. There was John the Baptist comes through before uh, Jesus comes through. But we do see uh, the uptick of many that are Muslim and many that are Jewish, both descendants of Abraham and Ishmael, or Isaac and Ishmael, uh, taking place uh, even in our lifetime. The original meaning of revival, I don't know if you know this, but the original meaning of revival is a beautiful term. It means to make alive again. It means to make alive again. That's the original meaning. We now refer to revival today as turning back to God, not necessarily making alive again. And it's still an appropriate use of the term to say revival is turning back to God. Remember Jesus in his letter to the church says, strengthen the things that remain, but get the other things right, right? So there, there is a form of revival. There are lesser forms, if you will, but the original meaning was to make alive. Be like Nineveh. When Jonah went to Nineveh, and Sam taught us Nineveh, Nineveh was dead as a doornail. There was no one there that knew the Lord. So the whole city was dead. When Nineveh received revival, it was made alive in a single day. That's revival. God poured it out on such a wicked place. America needs revival, but I would say we're not completely dead because we actually have a lot of Christians like us meeting tonight at churches around the country. It's still a remnant. It's a fraction of what it should be or what the Lord will want, but we're not completely dead because we do have many godly men still preaching and teaching and many godly people in the congregations and the family of God that are following the Lord. But we still desperately need revival because those numbers have dissipated over time. Israel's full pattern would kind of go something like this. This is kind of how the full pattern would go. Revival, apathy, rebellion, decay, judgment, crying out for mercy, back to revival. And then the process would start all over again. Revival, apathy, rebellion, decay, judgment, cry out for mercy, back to revival again. And then down it would go again and come back. But that's not just Israel's pattern. It's mankind's pattern. It's not just Israel's. And it's definitely America's pattern too. Would you not agree? Same pattern. By the way, that little pattern happens in the Christian walk. Revival. Got saved. Witness into everything that moves. And after a while, 
I'm not reading as much as I used to. Lapathy sets in. After a while, oh man, that, somebody just said something that offended my apathy. A little rebellion starts to jump in. Then some decay. Things drop off altogether. God sends a little judgment. A little whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Then there's a crying out, I'm sorry. Same pattern. Individually, collectively, nations. America certainly has this pattern. The original Puritans, they were a revival remnant. You know, they were birthed out of uh, a dead, at that time, state church there in England. And uh, the, just amazing, I don't have time to go through if you, if you get a chance to read the history of what took place there, how that group then went to Holland, and they spent the years in Holland there, and then you know, Pastor John Robinson, and you know, he really, really fortified that flock uh, and poured his life into them. He never even got to... Uh, get to the United States, uh, but it was his work that poured into that congregation eventually when they got to the United States, uh, which wasn't the United States, it was obviously just the Americas, but when they got to the Americas, they were really desiring to glorify God and to bring the gospel. They were the only group, by the way, that hit, hit the shores of America and didn't see the natives of anything but equals. They actually had great relationships. They did not rape pillage or any of that stuff, that came with the Spanish conquistadors and that came with other forms of Great Britain and the Dutch sending, uh, sending other groups to claim territory for kings. But remember, the Puritans were totally different. They were just like you and me. They were like the children of Israel. They were wandering to find freedom. And when they got here, they became friends and, and brought the gospel to the Native Americans that were up there. And they were the original seeds of what would birth our nation. Then in the 1730s and 1740s, there was the first great awakening. You know, after the Puritans had planted there and they had, they had been such a God-fearing, gospel-loving, people-loving people, it didn't take a little more than 100 years and America was off the rails. In the 1730s and 1740s, revival was needed. That was sparked when Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And George Whitfield and John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley, they also had powerful ministries during that same time there in the 1730s, 1740s. This is also when the Wesley brothers started what would later become the Methodist movement, and later the Methodist church. Jonathan Edwards said of uh, what he saw God pour out at places where he would preach and people would be gripped with conviction. This is what he said. He said, when God did, as it were, suddenly opening their eyes, let into their minds a sense of greatness of his grace and the fullness of Christ and the readiness to save, their joyful surprise has caused their hearts, as it were, to leap, so they have been ready to break forth into laughter. Tears also at the same time issuing like a flood, weeping uncontrollably and loud weeping. Many remaining for perhaps a full 24 hours motionless, with their senses locked up, but in the meantime under a strong imagination as though they had went to heaven and had visions of glorious and delightful objects. He's saying that God so ripped into people's souls, in a good way, ripping out the staleness and the sin, and the apathy, and the rebellion, and all those things, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, people were just dropping to the floor in repentance, and, and then later joy. John Wesley also saw people fall to the ground. Uh, you would never see this uh, in many uh, circles today, uh, where you would have uh, some, uh, some part of the Methodist church would... Uh, would You'd have a hard time finding this. But he saw uh, many people falling to the ground uh, in revival, in repentance, and he recognized that it was from God. And then George Whitfield, he actually criticized John Wesley for allowing it until it started happening at his meetings. And he couldn't really criticize it anymore. So each of these men, different backgrounds, not even the same denomination, saw the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley, um, 
you know, he, God used him in such a great way. Uh, out of that, you know, many people begin uh, to take and then fanned out. And so it wasn't just these men, but others. There was a multiplied effort out of that. Then the second great awakening was from 1800 to 1840. It involved men like Charles Finney who preached and many would come to Christ. Thousands would come to Christ. Um, there was uh, one, one uh, revival during that same period of time uh, that an atheist went there and he said it sounded like it was so loud. He said it sounded like a mighty thunderstorm or rivers of people just calling out to God. A third great awakening took place uh, from the 1850s and actually through the end of the century, right during the time when, um, when the Johnstown uh, uh, flood took place in 1889. It would be right in the middle there. Uh, it swept over parts of the U.S., uh, particularly the East Coast, but went all the way over into you know, Wales and England and Europe. And as I mentioned, down to South Africa where Andrew Murray saw uh, that. And over to Korea. That's where uh, you know, South Korea has many Christians today, and South Korea sends a lot of missionaries around the world. Uh, those, those, Christian heritage, those Christian roots were born out of that revival that started in the 1850s into the 1900s, and many South Koreans came to know the Lord, and they took the gospel to Japan and to China, and even today, you know, there's South Korean missionaries in India where Zach and Lee are and others, and all of that was born in that revival. So we see lasting impacts even to this day from some of these things. And then uh, what we saw uh, take place under uh, Pastor Chuck and others in the Jesus movement in California in the late 60s, early 70s, we are benefit, beneficiaries of that even to this day. But like Israel, our own nation and other nations, they continually, even after God's done a great work, what happens? Back to sin. Eventually, the kids forget, the grandkids forget, the great-grandkids forget. I, I, I sometimes cite, I mean, look, you know, where the Puritans landed, they landed on Cape Cod. Have you, do you know what, uh, Cape Cod is not a bastion of God-fearing, you know, uh, it, it really is not, the Northeast itself is very dry spiritually. It needs revival. Now, we need it in the, in the Bible Belt, too, which is, as my pastor in Charlotte used to say, is a whole lot of uh, belt and not a whole lot of Bible a lot of times. Uh, you know, we have, sometimes we have the honky-tonk Christianity uh, in the south, and you have the dryness in the north, and neither one are acceptable to the Lord. They're both just kind of a sham of, of what true faith in Christ looks like. But the nation would turn back to sin, and, and you see, you know, I'm not going to go through all of this, but uh, what happened with uh, Samaria and what happened with Jerusalem uh, is they, God tells the same story about both of them. They actually looked longingly, at what the Assyrians and the Babylonians had. They look like they're having so much fun. They get to do anything they want. They get to live any way they want. They get to drink anything they want. They get to have any kind of immorality they want. And they're, not only that, they have power. They have the best clothes. God describes how you looked, at, you looked at their desirable young men. They have beautiful horses. They have sweet cars. And really nice houses. And they get really big bonus checks. And they, and they look really important. And their, their memberships at the club and all the other stuff. And Israel would look at, over that and say, we want that lifestyle. We want all the stuff Assyria has and Egypt has and Babylon has. And even Hezekiah, who had seen a revival, uh, you know, the worst movie made, he actually invited the Babylonian envoys to come and he showed them the treasury not realizing that these guys look like nice guys, but they aren't. They'll stab you right in the back, which Babylon said, make note, we need to come back here in a few years, but not to visit, right? The vault's coming with us when we come back. America, we've lost our sense. We actually think, you know, we, we've got companies, I, I tell, you know, when I worked in the business world, I remember having many discussions about uh, products that we, were, that we were bringing to market where we were doing all kinds of work and building more operations in China. You know, China is really not America's friend. Now, there's many Christians in China. There may be more Christians in China than America. The underground church there, those folks are living it for the Lord. I mean, they're, they're on fire in some cases for Christ. 
But as far as the nation itself, you know, we, we can't tell. We have a hard time in America anymore telling who's friend and who's foe. We, don't, we, we seem to have no insight, no discernment, no bearings. And Israel didn't either. They wanted, on the one hand, what these other nations had. And God says, you actually had immoral relationships with them, never realizing that they were going to kill you. They befriended the Assyrians. The Assyrians were never their friends. So you, you, they were your lovers, and yet you didn't realize I was going to hand you over to them. It's kind of like an abusive relationship. It starts out, everything's beautiful. You ever seen these? You know, uh, and maybe some of you, unfortunately, have been in them. I've, I've seen them in, even in our own family history. It looks great at the beginning, but it's just a smokescreen because eventually... Things turn, and Assyria was going to turn, and Babylon was going to turn, and Egypt wasn't really their friends, but they didn't know, and there'd be a great price, and the Lord was allowing them. Now, their only protection from that was never to just say, well, hey, we're not friends with you all. Their protection was to turn to the Lord. We close with the price here. The price was great. God did pour out. The judgment here is prophesied of. It actually will come very soon. But here it's prophesied of what would be coming. And the price is too high. You know, to see your children slaughtered by the Babylonians or slaughtered by, you know, the Assyrians, they, they, they actually uh, took the northern kingdom out first. They were the first to go. That happened in 722 B.C. when uh, Samaria was the first to drink of God's judgment. You look at verses 32 to 34, it talks about uh, you will drink of your sister's cup because Jerusalem was going to drink the same cup of God's wrath that Samaria had already drank. But it would be horrific. Not only would people be starving to death during the siege of Babylon and people eating their own children, but then when, the, when they actually come inside the city and they're slaughtering people, those they didn't kill, some of them they dismembered in horrific ways. The Lord mentions it in verse uh, 25. He said, they'll come against you with a horde and says, uh, goes on to say, verse 25, they'll remove your nose and ears. And in fact, Babylon did some of that. That many people, they cut off their nose and their ears. That's the way they had to live the rest of their life. They were carried off naked into captivity. Didn't happen to everyone, but they did it to many. Lost all, lost everything. Everything they had worked for. The, the, the jewelry, the houses, all the stuff they'd worked for. It all came crashing down. And then the Lord says in the 45th verse, but righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and the blood is on their hand. You know, someday the true church will someday stand with the Lord in judgment against all those that have rejected Christ. Now that's not my number one thing. Look, I'm just telling you the scriptures tell this will take place. We'll be standing with the Lord as he judges the world in righteousness. We don't deserve to stand with him. We're just there by grace. But in, uh, in Israel, you know, if there was adultery, there would have to be a group of witnesses. The judge of the land would actually make the pronouncement of guilt. Of course, adultery carried a death sentence, and Israel had been carrying, committing adultery against the Lord. In Isaiah 5, verse 3 and 4, it says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. Listen to what the Lord says. This is God's heart. We'll come to a close here. The Lord says, What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done to in it? I mean, the Lord says, as we come to a close, the Lord says, Judge, you righteous men of Judah. You that have stayed the course with me, judge, you that have stood by me and cling to the truth and cling to the Lord, and you didn't abandon the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in our case, the faith of the apostles. We stood by the Lord, and the Lord would look out to all the world and all of the United States, and many that would say, I can't believe God's done this. If he's really loving, why would he have allowed this to happen? And the Lord would say, let me take you back to the 1730s. Let me take you back to the 1850s. Let me take you back when I, when I helped you out of World War II. Let me take you back when I saved your nation from the Civil War. But people don't remember that. You know, you can remember as much as you're willing to remember.
True? We can know as much about what God has done for us as we want to know what he's done for us. But it's hard for anyone to know the great things God's done when they're buried in a smartphone. You know, caring about things that just don't matter. And the Lord's like, look, I did all these things to bring you out of bondage. I did all these things to rescue you. What, this is God's word. What more could I have possibly done in my vineyard that I haven't done? And it's a redundant question because God's saying, I've done all that could be done. There's no one in our nation that doesn't have any opportunity to turn to the Lord. You know, we have the gospel on it. I don't know how many radio stations. On your smartphone, it's just like you can do bad things on a phone. You can do really good things on it. And some of you that like to watch you know, Calvary Philly or Calvary Fort Lauderdale or Calvary Modesto, I do that stuff on my phone, and there's good stuff. And you know, we, have, we have at our fingertips the Bible online. We have all this stuff. What more? God says, look, I've given you all these things. You'll either use them to draw near to me, or you'll just be in love with the things that are also out there and walk away from them. He... Um, I'll give you a couple of quick things here. In 1949, 1949, Life magazine warned this. For all of our churches and churchgoers, we have become a secular and godless civilization. 1949, Life magazine. 1960, Look magazine said Christianity is in retreat, despite the outward evidence that seems to indicate otherwise. In 1992, Forbes magazine said this. We could tell in 1939 that we were beginning to lose God, banishing him from the scene, and it is a terrible thing when people lose God. That was Forbes magazine, 1992. 1995, Time magazine observed this. It said, in so many gods we trust. Time magazine, in so many gods we trust. And so the Lord is saying, the price is too high to choose other gods, isn't it? Choose him and live, amen? It's a wise choice. It brings life, not only for you and me, but for our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, and everyone else. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we know that these are not always the most pleasant things to look at. But Lord, you tell us these things that we can share the good news the living water with people that otherwise, Lord, if we knew that otherwise would, would suffer, if we knew on May 31st, 1889, that the dam was going to break, we would run and tell everybody well in advance. And Lord, we do know that if we don't turn to you, a dam will break and your judgment really will come. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to be full of your love, full of your peace, full of your joy. But Lord, we would, in love, faithfully reach out with the gospel to those that don't know you yet. And Lord, we pray for revival, that our own nation would turn to you, but not just our nation, but Israel and nations in Africa and Asia and Europe and around the world. We'd see a, another great revival, Lord, not just here, but around the world before your return. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.